Good morning. My name is Brandon. Uh, as he said, one of the pastors here at Sojourn Heights, and we're in a series in the book of Exodus. Exodus being the story of Israel being delivered out of captivity as slaves in Egypt. And so to catch us up on the story, um, here's where we are. God has said over and over, uh, Moses and Aaron, go to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and tell him to let my people go. And over and over, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, has said, no, I, I don't submit to the authority of your God. Who, who is uh, this God? And so God sent ten plagues. Ten plagues, and we spent the last few weeks focusing in on the last one. The last one is known as the Passover. The Passover was where uh, the Israelite families were to uh, get a lamb, their Passover lamb. They were to sacrifice it. They were to eat it, and they were to put its, do- uh, its blood on their doorpost. And that blood on the doorpost would be a sign, and that uh, God would then pass over those homes and not strike down the firstborn from their families. But, but God would not pass over those who did not have blood on the doorpost. God did not pass over the homes of the Egyptians and struck down the firstborn. This was how God delivered Israel out of captivity and slavery in Egypt, which brings us to today and where last week we zeroed in on the Passover meal. This week, this week we're going to focus on the actual deliverance of Israel out of Egypt. Now, the Exodus, like the Passover, the event of the Exodus, like the Passover, it's it's importance in understanding the Bible, its importance in being able to understand Christianity simply cannot be overstated. Simply cannot be uh, overstated. Exodus, the Exodus becomes a paradigm for redemption. And so when, uh, when Christians say things like uh, redemption, talk about redemption, use words like salvation, our understanding and what we mean by those terms has its roots in the Exodus. It traces itself right through the Exodus. And so to understand Christianity, to understand Jesus, to understand the purpose of his life, his death, his resurrection, you have to understand the Exodus. You have to see how it is informed. What's happening in Christ is informed by the Exodus event, which is why there are a few aspects, a few key aspects of the Exodus that if we see them, and I mean we see them. I don't mean we read them. I mean we, we see them. They have the ability to sweep us up, give us a big and grand and beautiful vision of what your life is or could be about. And so I'm going to try today, and I make no promises here, but my hope is that this would be short and sweet because I, I want us to see one thing. There's one thing that I want us to see that if we see it, it just might give us a glimpse of what our life could be or is all about. But we'll get to that in the end. For now, uh, we're going to look at the Exodus under these headings. The depth and breadth of its judgments, the nature of its people, and the extent of its grace. The depth and breadth of its judgments, the nature of its people, and the extent of its grace. Let's talk depth and breadth of judgment first. Look at verse 29. 29. At midnight... The Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. In these opening two verses to our passage, we we get a picture, a window into the depth and the breadth of God's judgment here in the Exodus event. The depth of the judgment, this is seen in being the firstborn that was struck down. 
Let me explain that. In uh, ancient cultures and in many modern cultures today, just, just not modern Western cultures necessarily, the firstborn sons, they have a special importance. They were there to ensure your family's existence from generation to generation. And so for these Egyptian families, losing their firstborn son was not simply the death of a child, although that would have been painful enough. This was also the end of a family. This was the termination or potential termination of our family. They would have known, the Egyptians, when this happened, that while the Exodus was an event that happened, it was not going to be a one-time event in their life. It was going to be something that had ripple effects for generations to come. The depth of the judgment is seen in how cataclysmic this would have been on particular Egyptian families, not to mention Egyptian culture at large. There's also the breadth of it, the breadth of it. What I mean by that is that there wasn't a piece of society that went untouched. Did you see the way it was described? From Pharaoh's throne to the captive in the dungeon. From Pharaoh's throne to the dungeon, think top of society to the bottom of society. Top to bottom, not a single level of society that went untouched. This was not judgments on the elites or judgments on the peasants. This was judgments on the nation. All of it. There was not a single home, it says, where death was not present. And where there was not a single home where death wasn't present is to say that there was not a single home where judgment was not present. The judgment of God didn't just uh, terminate families. It reached every family. Unparalleled. Every level of society affected by this. Now, I want to acknowledge something that we have paused and talked about the last two weeks. That for many of us in this room, understandably, uh, that the idea of a God of judgment uh, can be really a, a tough pill to swallow. And so the logic goes like this. Uh, I, I want to believe in a God of love. I, I want to believe in a God of love. I don't want a God of judgment. Not a God of judgment and justice. I want a God of love. If that's you, I, I, I understand, but I do want to ask you a question respectfully. Would you believe the same thing if you were a victim of human trafficking? I'm guessing the answer is probably not. I'm guessing if you were the victim of human trafficking, you would more instinctively be able to understand that for God to show love toward you, he's got to sort of show justice toward your trafficker. See, the, the point is that you can't have a God of love without a God of judgment. And the God of judgment is the God of grace. You can't get one without the other. Same God. So if they are the same God, what then is the purpose of this judgment in the Exodus events? Well, if we were to jump back to Exodus 7, uh, we would see a twofold purpose for the judgment right here. Verses 4 and 5. Here's the first one. Pharaoh will not listen to you, then they will lay my hand, then I, this is God speaking, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. So purpose one is the obvious one. Uh, I'm going to deliver Israel, I'm going to deliver you out of slavery in Egypt through acts of judgment on Egypt. That's, that's purpose one. That one's teed up for us though. Look at verse five. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Purpose one, that Israel would be delivered out from among their captivity and slavery in Egypt. But purpose two, 
that the Egyptians would know that I am the Lord. I am the Lord being that royal language where the Egyptians know Pharaoh is not the true king. I, I, I have been brought up to believe that Pharaoh is the king of kings, but now I know that there is a different king in charge of Pharaoh. That the Egyptians would know I am the Lord. Judgment making its way into every home on every level of society had the purpose that the Egyptians would know I am the Lord. Now this is interesting. This is interesting. This is interesting that judgment in Egypt, on Egypt, the judgment that would bring about the exodus of Israel out of Egypt had the purpose of not just that the Israelites would know I am the Lord, but that the Egyptians would know I am the Lord. So here's the point. The exodus was obviously about Israel being delivered out, but it wasn't only for, for Israel. It was also so that the Egyptians would know, I am the Lord, which takes us to the nature of its people, the nature of the people of this exodus. Look at verse 37, back in chapter 12. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. So ballpark estimate about 2 million people, massive group, going through, and look at verse 38. A mixed multitude also went up with them, very much livestock, both flocks and herds. So Israel is sent out of Egypt, sent on their way, and they're traveling, and they're traveling together with a mixed multitude. What is a mixed multitude? What is it talking about here when it uses this term, a mixed multitude? Listen to this. The Hebrew phrase used here, Erev Rav, Y'all want to say that together? Let's do it together. Let's say some Hebrew together. Erev, good job. Much better than 9 a.m., but don't tell them. <laughs> refers to a mixed group of non-Israelites who joined them in their departure. Others who wanted to leave Egypt, probably also slaves, took the opportunity to join the Israelites. Elsewhere, the word Erev refers to foreigners in the midst of the Israelite population. See, this mixed multitude, this is technical term for, for, for non-Israelites who were among the Israelites. This is a mixed multitude of nations traveling with Israel, being uh, delivered out of Egypt. But does it include Egyptians? Are there Egyptians that are part of this mixed multitude? The people of the nation who was treating the Israelites unjustly, were they allowed to be part of this community? Let me finish the quote that I just started. Elsewhere, the word Erev refers to foreigners in the midst of the Israelite population. The incident recorded in Leviticus 24 indicates that some Egyptians had joined with the Israelites. Leviticus 24, you have the son, uh, a son whose mom is an Israelite, whose father is an Egyptian. Son, mom, Israelite, father, Egyptian. It's a picture that there were Egyptians traveling with them. And this is what's astounding about this. This is what is astounding about the Exodus and why you can't understand Jesus, why you can't understand Christianity if you don't understand the Exodus. Because at the heart of the Exodus story, the story that sits at the heart of the Bible is a story of deliverance, but not just for Israel, for the nations, including Egyptians. The heart of the Exodus event the heart of Israel being delivered out of Egypt. You don't just have Israel, you have the nations, including the Egyptians. 
The Exodus wasn't just for Israel. It was for the nations. So let me tell you what I think should be happening for some of us right now. For some of us right now, this should be deconstructing a bit of how we've been taught to understand the Bible. We've been taught to understand this dichotomy between Israel old, nations new. But the Bible's not simply Israel in the Old Testament and then the nations in the New Testament. The nations were included in the Exodus. Nations were included from the outset. And it's not simply physical lineage in the Old Testament, spiritual community in the New. It was always about a worshiping community made up of the nations. Always. From the outset, from the word go. It was about a worshiping community made up of the nations. And why does it matter that you see this? Why does it matter that the Bible gets deconstructed for us like this? Well, there are probably a thousand reasons why uh, we would say that and a thousand, reason, why, a thousand ways that we could apply this, but I'm going to give you one. One, and I'm going to keep it in line with the sermon today. One, one reason is this, that redemption has always been a real-world redemption among the nations. It has always been, will always be, a real-world redemption among the nations, and there wasn't an excluded nation then, and there's not an excluded nation now. Even Egypt, those who people from that nation who were perpetrating injustice on Israel were included in the Exodus event. There was not an excluded nation then, there is not an excluded nation now, which takes us to the extent of the grace in the Exodus. Because our passage has more to say about the judgment that brought about deliverance for this mixed multitude. It has something to say, not just about what they were delivered from, the slavery in Egypt, but what they were delivered into what they were delivered to. And the best place to see it is in what would have been a, I, I think, fairly confusing word choice uh, in uh, the story. It's the word plundered, but let's start in verse 33 and we'll get to that in a second. The extent of grace in the Exodus. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. This is an obvious uh, response. Uh, you have had, a, you have a dead person in every home, let's get Israel out of here and let's get them out quickly. For they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls before it uh, being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. This word plundered, it would have been a confusing word. When he said, go and um, ask them for gold and for silver, and then they plunder them. This word plunder, it would have been a head scratcher in particular to those first generations that have their Exodus scroll when they're reading through it, when they hit that word plunder, they would have stopped and said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What, what, what was that? So read that again. Did I, did I hear that right? Here's why it would have caught their ear and would have made them pause. The, the Hebrew word plundered, it's the same word as to deliver or to save. And it's a word that's been used throughout the book of Exodus already. What's been the refrain of Exodus? I will what? I will deliver my people. When I do this, that was for you guys, but that's okay. I will deliver my people. Let me give you a couple of examples. 
Exodus 3.8, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Exodus 6.6, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgments. When you see, I will deliver you in the book of Exodus, every time it's the same Hebrew word that's translated plundered here. The idea of the word is this, that God took Israel out of Egypt, and now Israel is to take gold and silver out of Egypt with them. Why this word, though? It would have been confusing. It would have been a head-scratcher for them. And I think it would have been even more of a head-scratcher when you realize that this word was used in the passage we read last week about the Passover event. Exodus 12, 27. I mean, just a few verses before what we just read. I'm going to read you this verse. I'm going to insert the word delivered where this Hebrew word was. This is the actual event that they are talking about. You shall say it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but delivered our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. There were plenty of Hebrew words that could have been used to say, hey, go, go and take um, uh, go and take gold and silver from them, or they went and they took gold and silver from them. Why this word? Why would they choose the word that at this point in their history would have been distinctly associated with the deliverance of God for Israel out of Egypt? Why, why would they have used this word? I think the truth is that at that time, I don't think they would have known. I, I think they would have just said, that's interesting. I, I don't really know why this word is there. Head scratcher, I'll give you, but I don't know why that word was chosen right here. But as the generations went on, as the Israelite families went on from generation to generation to generation to generation, they would have found this. They'd have found gold and silver being used to adorn the temple. And they'd have connected dots, have gone back and said, hey, look, we, we took gold and silver out of Egypt, and then one day we're getting to use gold and silver to adorn the temple. And this would have been the story, and of course, gold and silver wasn't always used for glorious purposes. And of course, that temple got destroyed, had to be rebuilt. But they would have looked at that temple and said, that is a place where our God dwells, and isn't she beautiful? Look at how majestic and beautiful our temple is, and it would have been a source of national pride and dignity and honor. Look at the place where our God dwells. Look at how beautiful that is place is, and they would have told this story from fathers and mothers to sons and daughters over and over and over and over, and they would have said, look at our temple. But then one day, one day, a Jewish man named Jesus would stand in a room full of Jews celebrating the Passover, and he would say this, destroy this temple, and in three days I will rise it up. And the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? but he was speaking to them about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. You see, here's what Jesus was doing. In that room, he was saying, listen, I am the temple. Yeah, that was a temple, but I'm the true temple. I am the place where God truly dwells, and what you will destroy on the cross, I will rebuild in my resurrection. And you can have all the gold in the world and all the silver in the world, and it could take you 460 years to build that temple, and it will be nothing compared to what I walk out of the grave with. Nothing. 
nothing compared to what I walk out of the grave with. And what he walks out of the grave with, he offers to you. And do you know how Ephesians describes it? Riches. Riches. Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. You see, when you see gold and silver in the story of the Exodus, it's not simply about gold and silver. It's a physical picture of a spiritual reality. It's a physical picture of what you would have one day in Christ, the riches of his grace. It is a shadow and the substance is Christ. You see, the entire event of the Exodus, the entire event of the Exodus, the entire event of the Exodus was a foreshadow to the Christ who would come, who would be the true Exodus. In fact, did, did you know that last week we referenced 1 Corinthians 5 where it says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed? Do you know the, the literal text there just says that Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed? Do, do you know why? Just Christ, our Passover? Because he is the sum total of what the event was pointing to. All of it. It's all about him which is why Exodus isn't just about being delivered out of Egypt. It's about being delivered into Christ. It's why Moses, Hebrews 11 says, looked back and said, he, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. It was about being delivered not just out of slavery in Egypt, but delivered into the grace that you'd have in Christ. And Christ came to lavish that grace upon all men, women, and children from all nations, and nowhere is that more clear than in the instructions about how to apply the Passover. Let's back at verse, or look back at Exodus 12, verse 43. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat it after you, after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. Okay, this this Passover meal, this perpetual reminder of the deliverance that God has brought in, uh, in Egypt for Israel, and it starts out with who's not invited. Interesting place. This is who's not invited, and it's the foreigner or the hired worker. Why? Because here's who they are. Uh, they, they are temporary residents in, uh, in Israel. They, they are people from other nations uh, who are in Israel, but they have not abandoned the gods of their nations and identified with the God of Israel, and so they are not allowed to come to the table, which is to say you're not allowed to worship your God and eat at the God of Israel's table. One commentator put it like this, a non-Israelite had a personal decision to make, whether to remain as a resident alien or personally embrace Yahweh and his promises, which is why the table wasn't opened for anyone, but the table was open to anyone. Let's keep reading in verse 48. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. And he shall be as a native in the land. Listen to that. Stranger. If he comes in and he wants to eat, he shall be a native in the land. If he's circumcised and comes, you should treat him as a native in the land. We'll come back to that. But no uncircumcised person shall eat it. There shall be one law, literally one Torah, one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. So if you have a stranger, an outsider who 
uh, comes and puts down roots and says, I want your God to be my God, circumcise him. Circumcise him. Let that circumcision be the declaration that I am leaving my gods and I am coming to worship the God of Israel as the one true God. I want your God to be my God. And if he does, here's how you're to treat him. You treat him as a native. You treat him as a native, as if there is no difference. In fact, when it comes to my table, native, stranger, one law. There's going to be one law for the native and for the stranger. Israel or the nations, when you come to me as my God, you are welcome at my table. Egyptian, Israelite, one law. One law. You come and you worship me as the one true God. You can come to my table. And what's the point here? What's going on here in this one law for the native and one for the sojourner? I, I can't say this better, and so I'm going to read you this quote. Here, here's the intention. Here the intention is to define more closely the status of foreigners who opted for circumcision and participation in the worshiping community. This is a community with two components, stranger, native, not two degrees or levels of membership. Thus, the circumcised alien is able to come into full membership under the same principles as the native-born. Here we are again. From the outset in the story of redemption at the heart of the Exodus event, it's about a worshiping community made up from the nations. You can be a worshiper from Egypt and you can be a worshiper from Israel and there's one law for you. One law. No second class citizens in my family. Same status. You come under my kingship. It doesn't matter where you're from. Israel, Egypt, you come. You come to my table where you worship me as the ruling, reigning king of kings. Listen, this is why we went into the, um, it, it wasn't, you know, physical Israel and then the nations in the New Testament. It wasn't just like lineage in the old and spiritual community in the new. Because the Old Testament is not a story of God failing. It's not a story where you get to the end of it and then God fails and so he's got to do something different. It is a story of him working out a redemptive plan to incorporate the nations as his people. The Exodus event is a story of the nations coming to his table, of his deliverance for the nations. It was always about the nations, always about grace making its way to the nations. So what does this mean for us? Two, two implications that just so deeply and desperately want us to see. One, Grace has always been and will always be radically exclusive and radically inclusive at the same time. It is radically exclusive. There are not two ways. There is one way to come and to access this grace, and it comes through Christ. It is not what works for you works for you and what works for me works for me. There is one way in, and it's through Christ. It is radically exclusive, but it is also radically inclusive. Anyone can come. Anyone can come. There's not one of you, not one of your neighbors, not one of your family members, not one of your coworkers who are too far gone that they're not welcomed in. Not a single one. There is nobody whose heart is too hard for God to redeem. Nobody. Anyone is welcome. But then two, two, your life, your life is caught up in a global 
movement of redemption. Your life is caught up in a global movement of redemption. The rest of the Bible from Exodus on is God telling the story of this global and unfolding movement of redemption, and it has swept your life up. You have been swept up into this grand and majestic global story, and your life is about so much more than the value of the dirt under your home, how big your yards are, whether your kids have to share a room or not, whether you went to A&M or U of H, your life is about so much more. You have been swept up in a grand, global, redemptive story, and it's a story that gives meaning to the mundane. It, It gives meaning to every little thing that you do. It doesn't, it gives meaning to everything. Nothing untouched by this. You have been caught up in this global movement, which is why where you live, where you work, where you play, it can change the way you see it. You can see it as you being put there to dispense the riches of God's grace to your neighbor, to your family member, to your coworker. We want so deeply, we want so deeply for you to have this grand and global and majestic vision for your life. And that you would see that when you embrace that, when you, when you have this kind of lens over your eyes for your life, it doesn't mean that you have to, to hop on a plane and go live in the bush in India somewhere, a remote village in the middle of nowhere, although you certainly can. But, but it means that you might have the courage to walk next door and invite your neighbor over for dinner. It, it means that you see ordinary, everyday rhythms of life have eternal significance. Ordinary, everyday rhythms of life have eternal significance. You know what a parish is? Par- parish is groups of men, women, and children. We meet in a home once a week. We uh, live life together. We, uh, let me tell you what a parish is. A parish is an incredibly imperfect little community. If you're in one, you know what I'm talking about. My parish says that because I'm in it. It's a radically imperfect little community, but you know what it is? It's a community of people trying to learn to live ordinary, everyday life with eternal significance. It's a community of people trying to learn to redefine everything in light of this grand and global redemptive story that you and I have been swept up in. This sweeping of this story, it it gives you the resources to fight for your marriage because it has eternal significance. It gives you the resources to be content in singleness because it has eternal significance today because your life has eternal significance today. It redefines everything. We want so deeply for you to see that you have been swept up into this Exodus story, the Exodus story that climaxed in Christ coming, but it will keep going. It is a story still being written, and it's a story being written through you. You are here to be an agent of God dispensing the riches of his grace to every man, woman, child that you come in contact with. Learning to live ordinary, everyday life with eternal significance. That's what we hope you see from this text. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the Exodus, for the text of the Exodus. I I know that we only scratch the surface. Father, would you Amplify the words that were spoken. 
Would you sink this deep into our hearts and would you give us a grand vision for our lives? That our hobbies can be about so much more than just a hobby that we enjoy. It can be about how you are working out your redemptive purpose in the world. Our home can be about so much more than the value of dirt, but how you are working out your redemptive purpose in the world. Give us this vision for our life. Give us this vision for our church. We want it and we need it. We're asking for it. We ask for it in Christ's name. Amen.